0: Corinthians chapter 9. Begin at verse 23 and read through chapter 10, uh, verse 17, and then we'll read article 33 in uh, the Belgic Confession as we continue our study of our confession of faith. Paul here in 1 Corinthians 9 is speaking of the sacrifices, the personal sacrifices that he has made in his gospel ministry. And he says this at the beginning of verse 23. This is God's holy word, inspired for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 23. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? "...run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize." For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes." And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples, and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you, except what is common to man. And God is faithful, He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one loaf. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. Then, uh, Article 33. The sacraments. It says this. We believe that our gracious god taking account of our weakness and infirmities has ordained the sacraments for us thereby to seal unto us his promises and to be pledges of the goodwill and grace of god towards us and also to nourish and strengthen our faith which he has joined to the word of the gospel the better to present to our senses uh, the better to present to our senses both that which he declares to us by his word and that which he works inwardly in our hearts, thereby confirming in us the salvation which he imparts to us. For they are visible signs and seals of an inward and invisible thing, by means whereof God works in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore the signs are not empty or meaningless so as to deceive us. For Jesus Christ is the true object presented by them, without whom they would be of no moment. Moreover, we are satisfied with the number of sacraments which Christ our Lord has instituted, which are two only, namely the sacrament of baptism and the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ. Human beings will normally eat when they are hungry and sleep when they are tired. I was uh, speaking with a mentor of mine in the, the ministry, and I was telling him about a—I'll a, admit—a very strange uh, eating regiment that I followed during the week. And I was trying to break down for him this idea of eating windows—windows w- windows of time where I'm allowed to eat and windows of time where I'm not allowed to eat—and. Uh, He's a very wise man, practical man, grew up in Nebraska, um, sort of a farm, a farm boy, um, and he's kind of chewing on this a little bit, and he, and he looks at me and just sort of confused, and he just says, I don't know about all that, I eat when I'm hungry and I sleep when I'm tired, and I had to kind of walk away with my head down because of his searing logic. Uh, These are signs that our body gives to us to let us know that we need something. Eating when you're hungry, sleeping when you're tired, food, hydration, and rest, nourish and sustain us. And we all know through experience that these are things that our body needs in order to function correctly, food and drink and sleep. This is the the physical side of our existence. But what of the spiritual side? Uh, how do we think about our souls and the, the, the nourishment that our souls need? The Bible often employs the, the, the same picture, and it's that which we, we, we know from experience, that there is this energy that our body gets through taking in that which we need in food and drink. John Calvin has said uh, quite famously that Jesus Christ is the only life and nourishment for our souls. As he's working out his doctrine of communion of the Lord's Supper, uh, he begins with that premise that Jesus Christ is the bread of life, and that he came to give us living water by which we would never thirst again. He's the bread of life. Uh, he is the living water for our souls. And these are effective pictures. They uh, they're, they're easy for us to grasp because of the way that, that we live our life. It's sort of that uh, getting to the point where you need something, you administer to the needs of your body. And then uh, once you have administered to that need, you feel refreshed. And this tells us how we are to live our lives spiritually. And these are difficult waters to navigate, however. Uh, because, however, we think about them, we can't allow them to—we uh, can't allow this mindset to intrude upon the, the foundational doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We say that one comes to faith in Christ and is therefore declared innocent before God. And uh, when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, that pronouncement that they receive. In the heavenly courtroom, it is eternal, it is unchangeable, it is secure. Jesus Christ, that that bread of life who gives us the life of our souls that is sure and steadfast and eternal, living water that we will never thirst again. And so theologically, we have to understand that life in Christ is not taken away from us. On the other hand, we must also say and affirm with the words of scripture that God uses means to preserve our faith and uh, perhaps better to say to preserve us in the faith, to nourish and strengthen and sustain us in the faith. Faith is the the way of the Christian. It is the life of the Christian. It's the foundation of the Christian life. We are called to endure and to persevere in our faith. Endure in the faith. Persevere in the faith. Scripture likens this to a race. The race of faith. It is a race to be, to be run so as to win the prize. Run so as to win the prize, as the Apostle Paul says. But the race that we're running is the race of faith, not the race of works. You see how easily you can turn it into something that it's not. You, you think of running a race and you think of effort. You think of effort, you think of works. And all of a sudden you're thinking of salvation according to what you do. No, you're running the race of faith. Running so as to win the prize. It's the, the race of God's grace, not of our own doing. Through this, through these commands and through this mentality, God is evoking, he's bringing out saving faith in us and helping us to persevere in that saving faith until the very end. He has promised to do this according to his promises. He is faithful to his children. And the plain fact is also that God uses warnings in Scripture. How do we think about the warnings? Some people say, well... Warnings are only uh, addressed hypothetically. They're only addressed to people who will uh, leave the church and thereby show themselves that they were never of the faith. But what we're going to see tonight is that God uses warnings as a means to evoke that saving faith in us. It's not so that we doubt our salvation, as true salvation can never be taken away, but God uses warnings. As a means to bring about saving faith in us. These are, uh, we, we have to go through these waters carefully because you, you can get turned around in an instant. So uh, we'll ask for God's help as we do that, as we look to this word. But it's imperative to understand how all of this fits together in the Christian life. And the sacraments are at the very heart of it, the sacraments are at the heart of this discussion. They are the the visible word of God as it says in our standards. This is the visible word of God and it is an essential means by which God works saving faith in us. How he brings it out into our lives until the end of our time on earth. The sacraments are means of God's saving and sanctifying grace. They are signs pointing us to Christ and the gospel. They are seals which confirm the promises of God to us. So let's turn to this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in uh, the end of chapter 9, beginning 23 through 27. Paul likens his faith to the pursuit of an athlete, an athlete who runs a race with all of his might, run in such a way as to get the prize, run to win the race. I uh, I don't share this too often, but I ran cross country for a few years in high school, and I remember freshman year. Freshman year, you you think of a three mile race as impossibly long, and you think, "Why am I doing this? Why, why am I participating in this sport?" And I remember those first couple three mile races that I ran that were uh, embarrassingly longer than twenty minutes. You know, that the times that I was getting were just so high and so terrible. I wasn't running in such a way as to get the prize, but about halfway through my freshman season, I started to put it all together, and then freshman, uh, the, the summer after my freshman year, I ran every day, and I was running hard. All of a sudden, sophomore year comes around, and I know how to run the race, and it's like a, it was a completely different experience to line up at the, the start of a race and think, I could win This thing, the level of effort, the kind of exertion that I was giving to try and win the race. So, Paul is talking about uh, a high amount of effort here. Run so as to get the prize, run to win the race. Paul's spiritual walk is likened to strict training, he says, or that's what it says in our translation strict training. This is a, a word that is used very rarely in the New Testament. And, and I think it's because it, it can quite easily be construed as something that's connected to salvation by works. It's about exertion and, and putting forth great efforts. Paul's point is that even when salvation is by grace, which it is, we know Paul's gospel, we know what, what he has said, uh, we are saved by grace alone, his point is that in the context of salvation being by grace... We give effort in our spiritual life, in our spiritual walk. Author Kevin DeYoung, Pastor Kevin DeYoung has said that it is a spirit-filled, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort. Spirit-filled, that is, it is truly the spirit who is doing this work in us, as Philippians 2 would say. It is gospel-driven, it's rooted in that uh, we are saved by grace alone, we're saved by faith alone. And uh, so gospel-driven, saved by grace, and then faith-fueled. It's not fueled by the sense of, I need to earn my salvation. It's fueled by our trust in Christ. And it's not navel-gazing either. It's not not this obsession with the self. It is rather preaching to our flesh. One of the greatest spiritual practices that you can develop is, is the practice of stopping to stopping listening to yourself and start preaching to yourself the gospel of grace by Christ and who God declares you to be in Christ. So when you're faced with temptation, you preach to yourself, that is not who I am in Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous for saying that. Stop listening to yourself. Start preaching to yourself. And so in the context of salvation by grace, it's okay to speak of effort, We speak of effort because it's driven by the gospel. It's filled with the spirit. It is fueled by faith. Paul says, by the spirit, we put to death the deeds of the body. John Owen has famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. I'm sure he he didn't mean to say that it kills itself. Be killing sin in your life or it will be killing you. This idea of effort in the context of grace Paul says that the eternal nature of our crown, that which awaits us, ought to spur us on in our race of faith. An athlete competes for something that's going to fade away, and it's fascinating going through and reading stories of athletes who uh, win a championship, something they had longed for all of their life, something for which they had worked so hard, and it left them with a feeling of, of emptiness after they finally achieve it the eternal nature of what God puts in front of his people, the eternal inheritance that we have, Paul says that this ought to spur us on. It ought to spur you on. Heaven and the great inheritance that awaits us. It's for this reason that he brings his body under subjection. And what he means by this is is simply to say that by the Spirit, Paul does not live in blind slavery to the desires of his body. He evaluates all things in terms of God's law. He has the wherewithal in his life to be able to live body and soul united unto the glory of God. And to say, is this desire that I have, uh, if I feed this desire, is that sinful? Is this something that accords with God's law? Because of the sinfulness of our flesh, we... Uh, we would be uh, falling into all kinds of, of gluttonous sins if we just followed our desires all of the time. To be a Christian is to grow in, in virtue and in service to God and to think about ourselves as a unity of body and soul to the glory of God. So Paul says he runs with discipline. He runs with training so that he might not be disqualified now that's a word that can make us really uncomfortable isn't it so that Paul might not be disqualified says here in verse 27 I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others I myself will not be disqualified for the prize so does Paul doubt his salvation does Paul think that there's a possibility that he loses his standing in Christ no. No, he doesn't. Think about what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, all the way back to the beginning of this letter. He says this, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end. Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end. He later goes on to say, God is faithful. This is the promise of God's work in us. He finishes what he starts. So Paul doesn't doubt his salvation. But Paul's point is this, that God puts heaven, the crown, the prize, the finish line, all of these things in front of his people in order to bring out faith to the end, to sustain us in faith until the end, to nourish and sustain our faith. He puts the opposite in front of us as well. You read Scripture and you you find warnings, whether it's the Apostle Paul or others. Warnings in Scripture are not there to make us doubt our salvation or to make us think that we can lose our salvation. They are means of bringing about, evoking faith in us. Perseverance in faith and diligence and an eye towards our eternal prize. I'll quote him at length here because I think his words are so helpful. Charles Spurgeon said this, speaking of warnings in the Bible, this is actually dealing with the warnings found in Hebrews chapter 6, which are some of the ones that uh, people struggle with the most. So Spurgeon says this, if God has put it in, this warning, He has put it in for wise reasons and for excellent purposes. Let me show you why. First, O Christian, it is put in to keep you from falling away. God preserves his children from falling away, but he keeps them by the use of means. And one of these is the terrors of the law, showing them what would happen if they were to fall away. There is a deep precipice. What is the best way to keep anyone from going down there? Why? To tell him that if he did, he would inevitably be dashed to pieces. In some old castle, there is a a deep cellar where there is a vast amount of fixed air and gas which would kill anybody who went down. What does the guide say? If you go down, you will never come up alive. Who thinks of going down? The very fact of the guide telling us what the consequences would be keeps us from it. Our friend takes away from us a cup of arsenic. He does not want us to drink it, but he says, if you drink it, it will kill you. Does he suppose for a moment that we should drink it? No, he tells us the consequences, and he is sure we will not do it. So God says, my child, if you fall over this precipice, you will be dashed to pieces. What does the child do? He says, father, keep me, hold me up, and I shall be safe. It leads the believer to a greater dependence on God, to a holy fear and caution, because he knows that if he were to fall away, he could not be renewed. And he stands far away from that great gulf, because he knows that if he were to fall into it, there would be no salvation for him. So, this is the way that we think about the warnings of Scripture, not to make us doubt our salvation but this is how God evokes saving faith in us. It's also how we think about the sacraments, that these are the means that God uses, the preaching of the word, the sacraments, the life inside of the church. This is God's means to sustain us and nourish us in the faith. So we read in our confessions of faith and in the scriptures that the sacraments are a means of grace, they are a means of God's grace in our lives, which we need each and every day. Just as in the Old Testament, we are nurtured through earthly elements which convey supernatural grace. Paul says this First Corinthians 10. All the Israelites were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them or accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. The earthly food and drink for the Israelites was spiritual. The manna from heaven, the water from the rock, it was spiritual. God was using that to bring about faith in many of them, even though it was an earthly food as well. God communicated the gospel of grace, that he is a God who saves by grace Through these signs, you would not have this food, you would not have this water, if not for me. The sacraments work the same way. They are God's visible word to us. They remind us that, uh, the supper reminds us that Jesus is the bread of life, that it's only by his blood that we can be forgiven. Baptism reminds us that we need to be cleansed from our sin. We need to be united to Jesus Christ in and through faith. So we read in our confession that the sacraments present Christ to us. Christ is the object of these sacraments, which Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. Here, uh, he's weaving together the Lord's Supper and the experience of the, uh, the Israelites. The Lord's Supper, the water from the rock, in Exodus chapter 17. It says in article 33 that, God does this because of our weakness and our infirmities, because we are weak, because we need help. John Calvin speaks of the sacraments this way And here, here indeed, our merciful Lord, with boundless condescension, accommodates himself to our capacity, that seeing how from our animal nature we are always creeping on the ground and cleaving to the flesh, having no thought of what is spiritual, and not even forming an idea of it, he declines not by means of these earthly elements to lead us to himself, and even in the flesh to exhibit a mirror of spiritual blessings. Because of the, the, the weakness of our human nature, we are prone to forget about the spiritual nature of things. And so God condescends to us through earthly elements to remind us to lift our eyes up to the spiritual, to that which we need. It's, it's a bit what we talked about this morning and what we've seen unfold in the Gospel of Luke. That Jesus is crucified on the cross and the crowns are beholding this. But the question that Luke is, is is painting for us is, will these people see beyond what they are beholding with their eyes? Just like the criminal who confesses Christ and he says... Jesus, you're going to be enthroned after this death. So remember me when you come into your kingdom. God condescends to us uh, in order to speak to us that way. Calvin uses the image of of baby talk. He talks to us like in baby talk. It's it's like a father or or a mother getting down on his or her knees and taking the hands of a a young toddler. It makes me think of, of my Two-year-old, right? And she's got her own language, got her own words that she's forming. And, you know, if I want her to clean up the living room, I'll get down onto her level and I'll say, me, ma, because that's how she says, clean up, right? So you say that to her, she knows what I'm saying. And if I were to, you know, speak in some uh, extremely long and drawn-out, long-winded sentence, which, of course, I would would never do that. Your pastor never gets long-winded, right? But... She wouldn't know what I'm saying and she wouldn't be able to follow me if I'm using all of these elaborate uh, theological words. No, I condescend to her and I speak in ways that make sense. That's what God does. He condescends to us. He talks in, in baby talk and that is what the sacraments are he gives us these earthly elements to lift up our eyes to spiritual things because we, we forget about, we can go through a whole day and, and, and forget about the, the world that goes beyond the things that we see. So we read in our standards about the, the Lord's Supper that it's a way to confirm God's promises to us. As surely as I receive from the hand of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely does he himself nourish and refresh my soul to everlasting life with his crucified body and shed blood. It's, it's built, it's given to us to allow us to know that that is how certain God's promises are. We're so prone to trust our senses, trust your eyes, trust what you hear, uh, trust what you can taste. That's what, re- that's what is real. We live in a world that's so obsessed with the, with the materialistic worldview. And that that is all that there is. And God condescends into that. He says, don't forget that what is ultimately important goes beyond that. It's a condescension of God to confirm his promises. We read that there the, the word made visible... So we say that the word can be without the sacraments, but the sacraments can never be without the word. That's why in many of our worship services we we don't have the Lord's Supper, because it's something that's added to the word of the gospel. The word can be without the sacraments, but the sacraments can never be without the word. Nevertheless, they are not empty or meaningless. They are made to accompany the word, and they can never be without the word, for faith comes through hearing. So you take all of this, you take the the mentality, the teaching of Paul at the end of chapter 9, and then the beginning of chapter 10, that mentality that he has about the Christian life, running so as to win the prize, and then talking about the grace of God that's given in these earthly elements. And we say that sacraments are grace for the journey. They're grace for the journey. Since God gives these signs as nourishment through Christ... They are part of how God gives us faith to persevere to the end. In whose power are you standing? Paul here gives various warnings. Look at verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 10. He says, if you think you are standing firm, in other words, if you think you're doing it yourself, if you think you're doing it by your own strength, take heed, he says, take heed, or be careful that you don't fall. Be careful that you don't fall. God's sanctifying grace is food for the journey. Because he has ordained that we walk this journey. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. He leadeth me. That's how he has ordained the Christian life. It's not as if you come to faith in Christ and God gives you a a drug that allows you to sleep until the end comes. To just pass out and ignore it all. That's not what it is. The sacraments are grace for the journey, to sustain you in faith, to allow you to be filled with with saving faith until the end, and he nourishes and sustains it. And we're careful to always understand that this is not in contradiction to the gospel. There are other aspects or teachings about the sacrament that uh, we should at least name and and why we think scripturally, biblically, this is the the best model to follow, that the sacraments nourish us, they sustain us until the end, baptism and the Lord's Supper. The Roman Catholic Church, their approach to sacraments would be like uh, batteries in a toy. There's an automatic transaction that happens, ex opere operato is the way that they talk about their sacraments. It is with transubstantiation literally becomes the body and the blood of Christ, therefore to take it in is as good as being nourished and sustained. The Reformed have always emphasized faith. We take the sacraments in faith. The the sacraments are made effectual in and by faith. It is like a meal that that nourishes and sustains us. It's not like batteries in a toy. The uh, Anabaptist approach, which is uh, always in view of the Belgian Confession, uh, they said that signs are useless. The, the Anabaptists in Europe at that time said that all of these things, these earthly things, are useless because God acts immediately upon you, almost like a, like a wizard doing magic tricks. And that's how someone has saving faith. And so they say that the signs were useless. Our view is that in Scripture we have this nourishing our faith. And the reason that they're adjoined to the gospel is that the gospel is a call to believe. It can't be this automatic transaction. It's a call to believe in the gospel. So the command then is, as Paul gives it to us in 1 Corinthians 10, is to stand firm in temptation and to flee idolatry. First, stand firm in temptation. A healthy faith, looks to what God has promised us to stand firm unto temptation. Know who you are. Preach to yourself. Affirm who you are in Jesus Christ. That is what a healthy faith does. A healthy faith also understands on our spiritual journey that God has never brought us to a place where it is impossible to obey Him. He never gives us a temptation That is too great for us. The call of God will never bring you where the grace of God cannot sustain you. A healthy faith knows that and recognizes that. And that's why we read in passages like this that we are to stand firm in temptation knowing that it is in Christ that we stand by the power of the gospel and by the power of God's grace working in us. Firm in temptation also to flee idolatry Flee idolatry. This is something that Paul sees in many of the Old Testament Israelites, that uh, the, the greatest desire of their souls was not the true God. And, if, and God needs to be the greatest delight of our souls. And that is something that uh, the, the preaching of the gospel and the sacraments bring out in us, nourishing us and sustaining us. In light of all of this then, the the end, the purpose that the apostle has for us in this passage is that by faith we would live in light of the promises and the warnings. And we would live with with the mentality that is proper uh, in understanding what saving faith is and how God sustains us in that. Sustains us in the gospel by the spirit, by faith. The promises of God don't allow us to adopt a Roman Catholic or an Anabaptist view of God's working in us. The warnings don't allow us to adopt fatalism or to think that those who are saved can lose it. The warnings aren't there to make us think we can lose our salvation. The promises of God and the warnings of God work together. For they both come from God and God is consistent. God cannot lose his Children, he keeps them by telling them about the dangers of unbelief and by telling them about, uh, telling them about the wonder and the power of his grace. It's with this mentality that we, we come to the sacraments. So I wanted to lay the groundwork this week as we think about this bigger picture of the sacraments. We'll look at them each individually in the next coming weeks. But that is the mentality we are to have with the sacraments of God it's a way to preach the gospel. It's a way to show the promises of God. It's a way that he condescends to us. And Christ is given in them. And Paul's point, the mentality that he wants us to have, is that we need them. Because verse 12, we can't stand on our own. We can't do it on our own. If you think you're standing on your own, be careful, take heed, lest you fall. So adopt the mentality of the Spirit-empowered, the Spirit-inspired mentality of the Apostle here. That we are to run the race, but we need help running the race. We need God's grace. We are to run to win the prize, but it's only through the grace of God that we can win the prize as he gives us his grace through the word and the sacraments. Knowing that the prize is Christ and eternal life with him. And that we only attain it by the grace of God through faith. As it's worked out in us in this already and not yet time. So our faith needs to be nourished and sustained. And it is so so by God's grace that that will happen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you will... Impress these truths upon our minds and our hearts. Give us courage as we live in the coming days. Help us to live for your honor and glory always. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's close by singing words of Psalm 23 in our blue hymnal, number 38. Let's stand together and sing all sing all the verses of number 38, The Lord's My Shepherd. great week in Christ, receive God's benediction. To the king of the ages, immortal,